This is a podcast from The Times, sports newspaper of the year. Hello, I'm Gabriel Marcotti and this is The Game Podcast. Now in the next 40 minutes or so, I'm going to try and make sense of an incredible final weekend in the Premier League. But of course, even I cannot do it alone. So I'm going to need help, and I've got help from Tony Cascarino, Alison Rudd, and we had to call out the big gun, Ollie Kay from Rippenden. Despite his chest infection, despite his 1950s telephone, he's with us too. So let's start at Stamford Bridge, where Chelsea... <laughs> now, let's start at the... Sta- at uh, Well, two places, the Stadium of Light and, of course, the city of Manchester Stadium. Unless you've been hiding under a rock, you know what happened. A city were losing 2-1, United were winning 1-0, um, and then in the space of 126 seconds, Ed Dzeko and Sergio Aguero scored deep, deep into injury time for Manchester City as they win their first league title since 1968. Ollie, only fitting that we begin with you. Um, I want to throw this at you. Uh, I was struck in the post-game interviews, Roberto Mancini saying that with five minutes to go, he said, no, no, this is impossible, impossible. He was sure they'd lost. Whereas Vincent Company, or Vincent Company, as one moron keeps calling him, um, kept saying, Oh, uh, no, we believe because we had scored those late goals against Spurs and Sunderland. Did you believe? Um, I, I believed it was possible to, to do. I believed it was possible to, to score two goals um, in the final minutes against a, a team that was had, had just learned that it was safe. But the thing was that all around the ground, you looked at you looked at the fans and they were just looking at each other as if you know the, the, the game was up. You looked at the players and heads were dropping, shoulders were dropping. And company, I, I would say, was one of the few exceptions. Company, Zabaleta, uh, Aguero, uh, uh, De Jong as well. These were the players that really stood up yesterday. And I, I, th- I thought shoulders were dropping, hopes were dropping, um, but there was enough character in the team just about to, to get them through. And it was just an incredible experience to be there and, and an absolute privilege to be there. Um, Alison, only there being his usual anti-English uh, self, because of course what he mentions, which city players stood up, he only mentioned foreign ones. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> but point um, to the point, I I thought as this was, unlo- you know, when, 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 when Ollie was talking about the, um, the city fans and what they went through, I kind of... You know, you, you kind of sometimes think of, of a fan base and, and developing expectations, and so how United fans perhaps generally accept, uh, expect to win and are surprised when they don't. When you're a City fan, when you, when you think of the last 44 years, when you think of even the last time you won a league title, it was totally overshadowed by the fact that then United went and became the first English side to, uh, to, to lift the European Cup less than a month later. Do, do you think it kind of multiplied their sense of oh, right, we've screwed this one up. They probably didn't need it multiplied, I think. I suppose what you're asking is if the roles were reversed, would United fans have Have their body language and their songs and the vibe from the the terraces, would they have been completely different? 
actually, you, they might, they might well have been. They might well have been. Actually, I mean, my uncle Wilf is a big City fan, and he was texting me, "Not, I'm so excited." He was texting me, "This is going to be horrible." And I suspect the vast majority of uh, contact between City fans was of that ilk. It was of the, "We're not, we're almost not looking forward to this. This is going to be dreadful." And you know, afterwards, he didn't celebrate. He went and lay down in a dark room for seven hours because it, that, it's part of. It is part of the fabric of what you become I think I mean it sounds a bit romantic and maybe a bit airy-fairy to think there's a there's a style of being a fan and that it might have an impact on the pitch but I think I think you could make a case for it in this instance actually Cass is this an, is this an extension of what we talk about when we talk about sort of winning mentality mm. uh, of, of a club um, or the culture of winning as we like to call it in my country um, but the the, the, the the fans the the players does it bleed into it mm. Is it easier if you've been there and, and won things? Um, well, I th- I, first of all, Gab, I, I think just adding on to what Alison said, is thinking that Man City's been a club that's you know been watching their rivals across the road dominate English football, and with that, you know, I'm sure the pubs and the bars and the restaurants has been a weekly, daily thing of you know them having to eat humble pie and watch Man United be so successful in that period, and then they get an opportunity. And it looked like they were going to fall flat on their face. I mean, I'm watching the game and I'm thinking, they don't know what to do. They're clueless. They they keep going out wide. They keep hitting it in. QPR players keep heading it out. And I kept thinking of, this is a bit like Chelsea-Barcelona, where Barcelona just didn't couldn't break them down in the end. Ten men and they're getting frustrated and you can feel it from the terraces. So all that, I mean, strangely enough... I'm, I'm crying for Edin Dzeko to come on for something different not whether he'll are you having an affinity for the big sort of form? well I just thought something different oh, yeah. need something and change you need you know you can't keep trying to play this and to play this way and, and I'm thinking as the game goes on where's the dribbler where's the guy the winger that can beat somebody because there isn't any of these dribblers anymore everyone wants to get a touch whip it into the box so I'm thinking all these things as the game's going on I couldn't see for love nor money City get back in in well, the game. Tony, but Tony, you, you are best placed, best, the only one here placed to know. Do, do you have, can, as the player on the pitch, yep. is is the overwhelming sense of what's going on in the game? Oh, absolutely. You? So if, if, you, if you'd been a City player yesterday and you, you tapped panic. into you're, that yeah, yeah. nervousness. Alison, you feel the tension. When you're out there and, you know, I've been in the World Cups and major games in, uh, you know, internationally and, and some club football games where you absolutely feel the pressure of what's happening around you. I, and, and strangely enough, I, I, it's no comparison at all, but I was with Nancy on the final day of the season and we had to have five results go against us to go get relegated if we won. And we knew that four of them were winning. We knew four of them would got their results. We was waiting on one more. And you could feel on the terrace and as a player, and then it, it, it happened. And then you're thinking, is the information right? <laughs> you know, is it right? So you're, you're, you're trying to concentrate on what you're doing. But people, you do, you absolutely get affected by... It's the same of, you know, do you get affected by booing? Of course you do. You, if you hear it and someone's giving you a stick, it does have an effect on you because look at the amount of players that suffer when they're getting stick from the terraces. And, and, and that's, you know, in many forms players do feel what's happening uh, on the pitch and they try to concentrate and just do their job but it can be you know it can be very very difficult uh, Ollie you buy into this you think that's why City were basically so bad for so much of the game 
Um, I think, well, I mean, you look at the way the game went, they they absolutely dominated possession. It was, as Tony said, very like the Chelsea. Okay, it's uh, not very difficult to get possession when the other team's got 10 people standing in the six yard box. No, exactly, but, but it's very difficult to find a space to, to, to create really clear chances when, when the opposition is defending like that, as, as we saw yesterday, as we saw in, in Barcelona the other week. City had some, I, I read that there was some, like, where Aguero shot was something like the 44th with quite neat, neat symmetry of um, of the game, or 44th that City had had, which, you know, you could talk, you could talk about sort of five, five or six near misses, but they weren't really creating the kind of clear chances um, that you would have expected them to. I, I think a lot of that had to come down to QPR because I, I thought they defended... Um, heroically for a team that um, were, were, were battling against relegation but I, I just felt that um, belief seemed to drain from the City team as, as the game went on um, idea, you know, the creativity seemed to diminish and as, as Tony said they, they needed something different I, I always think that the options from the bench are surprisingly limited in terms of the variation or variety of players that they've got but somehow they, um, they, they muddled through and I have to repeat it was uh, astonishing incredible we have to move on you talked about penetration and things that are lacking Obviously, there's something very wrong with with Joey Barton. Um, hmm. You know, he, he's said he's not the. There's a great James Ducker piece. Um, he said he's not the Antichrist, but I, I don't see anything redeeming in him. And I think, in some ways, I can deal with a bad guy better if he just shuts up and plays a bad guy all the time, but doesn't go and make the be the sensitive guy. Hmm. Those who don't know, again, and you have must have been living under a rock if you don't know, but. Um, he, he tangled with, with Carlos Tevez. He felt that Tevez had, had splashed out at him. I didn't really see it on television. But, of course, his re- response was to elbow Tevez in the head uh, away from the play. Um, then he um, and the referee called him over. Mike Dean sends him off. And then after he sends him off, um, as he's going off the pitch, he decides to go and uh, a knee Sergio Aguero in the back and then tries to headbutt Vincent Company and then pretends like he's going to attack Balotelli, but then thinks better because he knows Balotelli's crazier than he is. Um, that, that's a fair summation of, of, of what happened, Tony. Now, I'm not going to ask you, you know, we've all, we've all been there, we, we played football at a higher level, we've all seen people go crazy, you've played with some crazy people, but what, what's ugly here is this weirdness of, of, it's not just somebody losing his cool, it's, there's, there's a whole level of premeditation, and he appears to indicate that, because either Joey Barton or, I don't know if he's a servant, he pays to tweet on his behalf and look up those, uh, those, those quotations on the internet, but actually tweeted that as he was going off the pitch... One of his teammates said, oh, take one of theirs with you, meaning, like, go attack Aguero and he might retaliate, and then you'll both be down to 10 men. Now, as I see it, Cass, there's two options here. Either Joey Barton is basically grassing up a teammate because that's a very serious thing for a teammate. You would expect a senior teammate to tell him. Um, and that's really bad because he's getting his own club into even more trouble than he's got himself into. Or it's even worse because he's just lying and inventing this, as perhaps he might have lied and invented things in the past, um, to go and shift the blame to one of his teammates. Which is it? 
I don't, I don't know. I don't know if Joey knows either, really. I, I, I find him a very frustrating guy. I think he's nasty. Um, you talked about the instance there, Gab. What got me at the end was even when he was being led off and he had Eddie Noveski and he had um, Kevin Hitchcock alongside him. And I know them both. because Two goalkeepers. Yeah, two goalkeepers. And Hitchy, or Kevin, Kevin Hitchcock, is trying to just lead him away. And he turns around to say to him, and you can tell him, get off me. And I'm thinking, you're one nasty piece of work. Hitchy's a really good guy. I mean, I'm not saying because he's a good guy anyway, but he's trying to escort him away, get him away from the trouble, get him off, and he's obviously thought, get him down the tunnel, get him away from this pitch. And he's still prepared to have a go of a member of his own staff. And I thought, that just typifies you, because you're a nasty piece of work. He, he makes quotes all the time. I don't read them, Gab. I, 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 a lot of stuff I just ignore with him because I find him frustrating. I saw him on on TV a few months ago having to go at Carl Henry and he was talking as if Carl Henry only could make his name but because he was kicking Joey Barton well I'm sorry Joey's not that big enough and not that good enough to be a, a person that's someone else you know like Carl, Carl Henry needs to put on himself on a platform and be lifted he is an average player at the moment and he's been average all season and with that nasty side I just I just thought do you know what Mark Hughes has got now stayed in the Premiership now what was your first job what would might be my first job. My first job is to get him out of the club because he's a problem. Because when you have players like him, when they're brilliant for you, they can be one of the first players on your team sheet. When they're not and they're their problem like he can be, they're the first person you want out the door. And that's one of my first jobs. Because I, I, after yesterday and what you said, Gab, about the you know teammate, and he just seems to have no conscience about what other people. And like you said again, you know the consequences of what he says. He seems to take no responsibility at all. Um, Ollie, uh, you argued, I think it was uh, last week, you wrote this big column arguing that Joey Barton is a role model for everybody and should be uh, England captain at the Euros. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. Yeah, he didn't really do this. But uh, <laughs> to you, did, did, did you buy what Cass is saying? I mean, did you see uh, uh, a possible redemption for this guy? Do you think he wants to redeem himself? or do, do, Should we even... Stop talking about him and like pretend like he doesn't exist and you know sort of shun him the way the Amish communities do with miscreants and scumbags. Mm, that might, that might, might be uh, might do him some good in some ways. I, I, I've come across Joe Barton a number of times and dealt with him sort of on one to one basis. And uh, you know, in interviews I've, I've I've met him sort of for a chat once or twice, and um, I have always found him. Uh, great company, charming company, bright, intelligent, interested in things that are, um, you know, the, the things beyond the, the, the normal footballer conversation you would have, if I can put it that way. And he, I, I struggle to see, um, I, I struggle to work out what it is that turns him into a sort of psychotic figure at times that, that he clearly has been. Um, and there's clearly just something that, that there's, he's clearly not wired correctly in some certain way and you saw I mean the, the elbow yesterday it was irresponsible it was it was irresponsible like the John Terry thing was in um, um, in, in Barcelona but it was it was also uh, but I would say that the what followed was was far far worse I mean it was the, the, the look on his face was was one of pure aggression 
Allison, um, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, unlike Ollie, you didn't go hang. You haven't spent much time hanging out with Joey Barton, no, but smashing I do, up I McDonald's do. and things like that. But no, but I do read his column in the Big Issue, and I like the fact that he does that. And I think he finds, I think he's a complex character, and I think he has decided he's uh, a truth warrior in some way. That he he wants he wants he wants to be as honest as he can. Whilst being a difficult person and an aggressive person, he also wants. He's also a bright. He has a brain, and I think he sounds conflicted and confused. Sorry, no. And and I think it's interesting that you seem more cross that he lied in a tweet than got sent off in a, in a crucial relegation oh, battle game. Because my expectations of this person are incredibly low. I think he's a bad person. I mean, I, I think at some point, you know, we we, got, we have to stop this whole like moral relativism, you know, garbage. This this is a guy who's received all the. He's not 18 years old, right? He's he's pushing 30. He has reproduced. Okay, he's been allowed to do that. He's <laughs> he's 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 got one bad thing after another. He's received all the help in the world that that sporting chance guy. The uh, um the the, the the he makes four million pounds a year. He could he could hire bodyguards. You know, in the NBA there are some players who can't get can't can't help but get themselves in trouble. So they hire bodyguards to walk around them and to stop them from getting in trouble. I think Tony, you and I both know of well, at least one footballer who does that as well. Yeah, like, but you're, but this you're, is, but this is the reality of this individual, and we count out to him because because no, he's some some interesting. No, no, we're not counting. I think the opposite is happening. I think we're no, talking we're, about him. There are many players who play like Joey Barton and uh, commit stupid fouls and are over aggressive on the pitch, just like Joey Barton. That's not the but problem. They don't, with Joey they, Barton. But they don't. They don't try and intellectualise it afterwards, and they don't have no, platforms here, the there, and everywhere. Let me get this straight. So you the don't like the fact he tries to explain no, himself. I, I don't. I don't like the fact that, that he, if, if as seems to be the consensus, I don't, I don't like the fact he comes up with implausible explanations, which are basically, which appear to me like lies, and where he implicates his teammates. I don't like that. But the, a lot of these other very aggressive players aren't people who have who spent 77 days in prison, who've, who've, who broke Usman Dabo's jaw, who, who've got such a history of nastiness. That's what bothers me about this. At some point, you know, I, I, can we not make a difference between I, do we have to teach treat everybody the same? Do we have to go and say, like, why can't we say this is just a bad person? And if he wants to, if he wants redemption, then, then he can go and redeem himself. If he doesn't care about redemption. That's fine. Keep doing it. Okay. But, but but you know, why do we have to treat Joey Barton and Jason Roberts as if they're the same person? For example, mm. just to mention somebody who's good versus somebody who's clearly bad. Um, moving on from Joey Barton to. Uh slightly more topical issue, perhaps, because, um, as I said, I, I'd like to make the rest of this season a Barton-free zone, uh, what's left of it. Um, but inevitably, Ollie, we, we attach so much importance to victories, and perhaps rightly so. In the end, Manchester United, lest we forget, have exactly the same number of points as, as Manchester City. And yet, inevitably, we're going to be talking about, oh, look, it's, it was, it's a shift of, uh, in the balance of power and, and all this jazz. Um, is it a shift in the balance of power or is it simply a case of United actually probably overachieving this season, given some of the difficulties they've, they, they've had and finishing level with City? And it's actually hard to split them and we're in for an exciting couple of seasons. 
Um, I, I think United have done exceptionally well to get 89 points. I, I, I don't think this is a, a great United team by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think they've got the quality of individuals that City have got. Uh, I think City are stronger man for man in pretty much every department. So it says something about United that they've managed to keep pace um, all season and, and somehow get into a position where they were eight points clear and then finally blow it, which um, still defies belief, really, because they're the last team that you would expect to do that. Um, but in terms of what happens next, well, I can see City going from strength to strength and I could see United not spending because they generally don't spend huge amounts uh, of money under the Glazers. And... Um, if they don't do that, then they, they are in serious danger of getting left behind. Because although Fogey might think Jones, De Gea, Smalling, all these younger players, Hernandez, Welbeck, uh, you know, maybe he will think, well, they're equipped to dominate English football for years to come. You look at Silva and Aguero, these guys aren't exactly old, and I, I wouldn't swap um, De Gea, I wouldn't swap Hartford De Gea or. Aguero for Welbeck or whatever. I think City have got better players, and I think they're going to get even better players this summer. Um, Alison, if if I'm a United fan and I want to see the glass as as half full, um, I've got plenty of reason to do so. Though I mean, in spite of what Ollie says, if I bring in a legit midfielder, somebody who can run and defend and provide a bit of leadership. Then you know you think De Gea, who finished the season I thought quite strongly, is going to be even better next year. You presume Jones and Smalling aren't going to get worse. Vidic is going to come back and and, and dominate. Uh, Rooney had a in the end, even though he tailed off a bit, you know had a, scored a lot of goals this season. And if the gap is zero points, don't I have just as much reason to think that I'm going to be better next season against a, a city side that where you know that's going to lose Tevez and where Balotelli might go insane again and. They might buy the wrong people. And yeah, if you're if you're a United fan, that here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. They, they, that's what you'll be talking about. 
this week. I think also added to that, you've got the fact you know you've got a manager who seems to pull something out of his own psyche and managerial ability when he has a proper opponent. And now he knows that City are the real thing and he knows they accomplish something that, that takes them to a new level. He, he'll love rising to that. And he seems, he seems to get cleverer when he has an opponent he can really focus on. He did it, um, you know, the, the famous knock Liverpool off the perch thing. I mean, he'll have another, another sort of focus for his... Um, to give him energy, I think. So if you're a United fan, you'll feel, yeah, yeah, Fergie, Fergie won't sort of become suddenly overnight looking like an old man. He'll be re-energised by the, the prospect of it. And... Um, I mean, I, the trouble is, I think, I, I think Ollie's right. I think, in actual fact, City City will beat them for, for the players that they have. But I, I, I think I think probably what will happen is next season, this United team, as you say, Gab, with maybe one or two additions, uh, will be better than they were this season, and Fergie will be uh, sharper than he was this season. But thereafter, I think they might diminish simply because of the amount of income being spent on players. Well. I can't imagine City not spending 100 plus million again this We're summer. We're financial for a play. Are we well, all forgetting that? I always, I always think clubs find loopholes. And I've said it to you before, Gab. I and think. I've said to you, you, they can't because you're AFI vigilant and they're well, aware of all the loopholes. Well, we'll see. We'll see if money's not spent. I don't. I can't believe that that clubs have always opened doors, um, and I. I think they'll spend big. Um, why would they do anything different to get to where they've got to? Um, and they'll look for the biggest players in world football if they can. Um, I think United have to uh, make certain starters. I, I made a point in the paper this morning about Man United with a team under Fergie. When they broke the power, they went after British transfer records. They got players that were certain starters in their lineup. And the moment they stopped doing that, which is really the last year, because if you look at that sort of trialist and cleverly and well bet because they were out on loan to other clubs Ashley Young yeah he looked the most certain starter of them all uh, they'd got De Gea in um, again it was a bit of a trialist with a, such a young keeper and the final one was Phil Jones again no real guarantees and I think United have to go and get three or four big players to come in and say they're going to be in my first 11 I'm not convinced about United's fullbacks either I think that's been a problem for them since Gary Neville. Uh, I'm Petri Severo, I think he's fantastic going forward, but I'm not a great fan of his defending uh, as a left back. Um, and like you said, midfield needs shoring up. I do think they've got a lot of good forwards. So there is, you know, there is room for United, but they've got to be competitive and competing against the top sides. Um, Ollie, we're going to get to relegation in a second. I just want to get you quickly on the Manchester City manager. Um, one school of thought is that, oh, well, it's easy to win when you spend bazillions and bazillions. Um, and, and that it would apply to Roberto Mancini just as much as I'd imagine it would apply to Jose Mourinho's record-breaking season at Real Madrid. Um, but then there's another school of thought that says when you spend a lot of money, you bring in a lot of egos, you raise a lot of expectations, going that extra mile, that extra stop from second to first place is actually exceptionally difficult. Um which is it? Because last week we had uh, we had our boss Tony Evans here, and he basically suggested that you know you could have put any old schmo in uh, in, in Mancini's place, and uh, they probably would have been competing for the title. Uh, I, I disagree with Tony on that. I, 
he has he has done what he was brought there to do. He has turned them into a team who, for all but about four weeks of this season, have played with with a fantastic attitude and a fantastic mentality. So I think he deserves great credit. And, and enough, enough happy talk, um, and on to something less pleasant, which is uh, Bolton Wanderers um, relegation. Now it's always cruel when it when a team goes down. Uh, in this case, I I don't want to go on about referees again, but I, you kind of have to, I, I think. Alison, you're the qualified ref. Um, I don't believe it's 1930. I don't believe people are playing with, with medicine balls and Nat Lofthouse is the big striker stomping on a goalkeeper's head. So how do you explain this Jonathan Walters, Adam Bogdan thing? Well, it's not 2008, never mind 1930, because usually over the past sort of decade what you found is that keepers have been overprotected by referees almost to a laughable degree sometimes you know anything happens it looks like maybe the keeper might have been you know slightly touched oh well we had to have to blow the whistle and this I think was a, a this sort of unfortunately for Bolton brought it back into line with how the game really ought to be played because the referee has to decide is the keeper in full control of the ball or not, and I, I think it was really marginal, and I think probably, probably, I would have, I would have said um, it was a free kick, and 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 it shouldn't have been a goal, but it was, it was marginal enough not to, to be a ghastly mistake. It's just I think we've become so used to thinking that any time a goalkeeper is touched, it should be a free kick, and that is not true, and it's a bit of a fallacy. If he's got two hands on the ball, it's automatically his in his possession. It's that's not true. He wasn't he wasn't quite quite in control, but it was controversial enough to be. And I think it's been overlooked because of what a great, amazing day of football it was. If that had been the only game of the day, everyone would be absolutely gobsmacked that it, the goal was allowed. I, I agree. Cass, I'm looking at you <laughs> since I'm assuming you came with close proximity with goalkeepers. Yeah. I'm not a qualified I mean, referee like Alison. No, but, but we, we, I, I we all know what... The, I mean, Alison's kind of explained what the rule is, right? So, yeah. and we, you know, we, there's no point in saying what the rule should be. Um, but did it... Look to you, they, that was a foul. Or Stephen, just with your own eyes. Um, I'm absolutely with Alison because the modern game has been littered with the slightest of touches and the slightest. We're looking at every angle, at every position on a pitch, and and if a goalkeeper does get challenged in that particular manner, everyone's uh, you know up in arms. Um, I I didn't think it was that bad, but. You but know, it's a foul. It, it, well, as we see football today, yes. Okay, but this because is today. And if you are going to change it, you don't change it all of a sudden in the last game of the season to send Bolton down. I mean, am I, am I wrong here, Ollie? No, I, I, I thought it was a bizarre decision. You, you never expect um, the, the, the striker to get the benefit of the doubt in those situations. You always expect the goalkeeper to get the benefit of the doubt. And I don't even think there should have been any doubt. I, I thought Bogdan had the ball and Walters sort of came in contact with him, with him rather than with the ball and, and it you know it, it flew up and went in I I feel desperately sorry for Bolton to, to go down in those circumstances I, I know it all tends to even out and people will think about the, the, the goal that shouldn't have been against um, or sorry the, the QPR goal that wasn't given against Bolton but yeah. it's um, oh, I, I thought that was, that, that was a terrible way to go to um, to be relegated well I, I thought the penalty decision for for Stoke was pretty dramatic as well, don't you? So does this mean then that Chris Ford, that, that sorry, the uh, British cyclist is going to get all this abuse now on Twitter <laughs> from Bolton fans? Gad, 
I mean, yeah, it's it's a, part of the game. The, the game had four goals, and one of the goals was what for Bolton was where the keeper Sorensen's threw it in the back of the net, and the two goals for Stoke were, you know. Okay, Walters was involved in taking the penalty, but I thought the penalty was a pretty poor decision. As much as the the, the first goal, I thought the penalty was. Well, I I don't want to. I, I promised myself that you know it's the end of the season. Let's go off in the summer. Let's not. But would have been relegated. Referees. I think referees have been a joke this season, Frank. I think okay. it's been a, a pretty a pretty bad season all around. I think there've been some some exceptions. But I think that basically they've changed the outcome of the Premier League. So I, but I don't want to say it because then I'm being negative and I'm ready to parade. And today this was the most fantastic season in, 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 in the history of the Premier League, as, 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 as that poll showed. And we're all happy. And yeah, okay. cuckoo land. You, 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 there will never be a season where every referee performance will be No, nobody's purpose. asking for that. Nobody's asking for that. But I think there are certain teams that, hey, it's the luck of the draw, perhaps, had more decisions go against them this season and were thus more penalised. And there were also some some mistakes this season that I don't think simply were are acceptable. Of And I think the Premier League would be better off if instead of employing the who they think are the, the 20 best English referees in the world, if just as they do with their footballers and their managers, um, they went out and said, hey, let's work away to so that we can sign the 20 best referees in the world. Right? I, I think you'd be better off. I don't see why there's freedom of movement for players and coaches and, and owners and whatever, but this is the one category where you're stuck with these same 20 people who, uh, who happen to be, to be well, not even British, they have to be English, basically, right? I so. still don't think it would make much difference. I still no, think because referees sit are all the same. We never discussed them. Saying, oh my goodness, did you see what the referee did? No, but I'm not allowed to say that this season I thought there were more mistakes or more incidents than last season. The referees have to be consistent all the time. They can't have a good year and a bad year. Bill Edgar, would he know? I, I'm, sure, I'm sure Bill Edgar <laughs> would know. But enough, let's go from referees to happy thoughts. Champions League final uh, this Saturday. Uh, Bayern Munich and and Chelsea. I kind of feel that we're all sort of spent from this incredible final day of the season. So I don't, I'm sure the preview will build up and excitement will build. But um, I had actually just forgotten about that. <laughs> there you go, Cass. You're a former Chelsea player. I'm sure you hadn't uh, forgotten about it. Um, two teams that. Kind of Chelsea difficult to judge because the last couple of weeks they've mm. they've had up and down results except for the FA Cup of course but they've they've always they've basically been preparing for this game. Uh, Bayern Munich on the other hand coming off uh, a five-two mm. hammering in the uh, German Cup final where their defense looked absolutely terrible. The good news is that defense they had out there those were actually the starters, mm. um, many of whom are suspended, so <laughs> you're, you're not even going to get them um, in Munich. Your thoughts? My thoughts are, um, well, I mean, playing in their own backyard is a huge obstacle for Chelsea to overcome. Um, they're going to have to play really well. Um, I'm so disappointed with really the rules of football that don't allow clubs to play their, their strongest sides. I mean, one thing I would say about Bayern and, you know, Dortmund did beat them and they beat them really comfortable was the lineup was really strong by Bayern. I was I was actually surprised. Bayern's best 11. Yeah, best, best 11, 11, which really surprised me. I think handling of the front three is going to be an issue for Chelsea. You know, looking at Gomez, you know, his heading ability, also his movement, his strength, and technically he's very good as well. And then he's got the, the likes of Ian Robin and Ribery. I think that's something for... Ashley Cole's got to be absolutely tough 
top of his game. Um, because of the way football is, you, and we've seen this weekend, that the unexpected, I think Chelsea have got a real mountain to climb and in some ways I do think it'll be harder than their Barcelona result. Um, I'm looking forward to it in the fact to see um, Ribato's put all his, you know, which he's wanted to do. He's gone for everything by by changing the Chelsea team in the last few Premier League games, hasn't he? You know, he's really set his sights on the, the 11 that's going to go out there are going to be as fresh as they can be. They're going to have to put a lot of work in and I think he'll go with his tactic of trying to stop Bayern and, and know that he'll get chances in, against a back four that is certainly weaker than Barca's uh, for me. Um, whether you disagree or agree, Gab, that's how I see it. I well, do I, think Bayern can be, you can get at them, but I think the biggest problem is trying to stop them because uh, they are a very, very good front three. Um, there's no question that the back four that Bayern are going to play mm. are, are weaker than Barcelona's. Will Van Buten be back in the team? Because Van Boyden played 59 minutes yeah, on, the weekend. Um, on, on Friday for Friday. the C team. Um, but you know, I want him out. to be fit. He's been out since January. Yeah, I want. I've been bought. Whether it's Van Boyd or if you're a Bayern fan, you know, yeah. you're going to be pretty jittery. Alison, if you're Di Matteo, do you turn around? Maybe turn into a positive. If they are going to be a defensively weak team, Di Matteo is fundamentally an attack-minded manager who didn't play that way because he had to. He felt he had to uh, since uh, since becoming the number one at Chelsea. But previous to that, his record is there for all to see. Given. Um, given the problems in Bayern's defense, do you just say, hey, you know what? My defensive guys are out. Hey, no problem. I, you know, I'll chuck a little bit of Mata, Drogba, uh, um, Kalu at you, maybe maybe a splash of Maluda, and have my fullbacks attack you, and we'll go at it. You know, we'll have a slugfest. That is and- the big, that's the big, that's the, that's the big call for Di Matteo. Does he think I'm going to play... Two holding players in front of my weakened defence, which he has done to some quite, you know, to some some success since he came in. Although when one of the two is Frank Lampard, when when, when he's played Lampard and Mikel, like I mean, like, like against Napoli in that four-two-three-one, you know, you're you're still playing a more offensively-minded player in a deeper position. Well, that well, that's the big call, isn't it? That's how that. Yeah, it's how you set that up. If if okay, you play two. Do you play two fairly conservative players in front of the back four, or do you have your shape defensively, but play someone like Lampard who's attack-minded, or as you say, Gab, do you just go for it? Um, that's going to be his big shot, and he'll he'll get the job or not get the job at Chelsea based on how he organises the team. I would add, all season I've been saying, oh. The Champions League looked like it's it could well be Bayern's after all. It's it's in the Allianz Arena. What what you know? It's sort of fate and and how marvelous if you do get there and it's your hope. Actually, I think it might be a disadvantage to Bayern because the stadium will be nothing like they expect it to be. I think it might undermine them just slightly. They go there and it's not it's not a home match. It's, it, it, there aren't there are going to be slightly more Germans there, but not that many more. I think they could find it slightly unnerving to have their own home stadium sort of decked out in the Champions Champions League livery. And Chelsea, I think, will will go in with that deliberately plug the underdog tag and could just nick it on that basis. Time for some quick hits. Tottenham finished fourth, and it could mean Champions League football if uh, Chelsea don't beat Bayern next Saturday. Uh, Cass, what's more important, hanging on to Adebayor or adding depth to the centre of the Tottenham defence? Um, 
I think the depth of the defence I think with Ledley and Gallas it's been a problem especially in the second part of the season they were conceding way too many goals uh, and I think Harry will certainly look I mean having Ledley miss so much of training and only could be available for games and not that many games is a problem Adebayor I think it's a it's a tough call on him because if he's the Adebayor with a bit between his teeth I think he can be a great player um, the trouble is I never know how long it's going to last with him so I take it from your answer that adding depth to the defence is far more important than keeping out of your. That's what I said at the okay. very start. Thank you. Everton finish above Liverpool in the table. Allison, the Times gave Liverpool's season a C-plus grade, which I thought was actually somewhat generous. Uh, and we noted, and no, by the way, that wasn't Tony Evans filling it out, uh, nor was it Tony Barrett. And in that same uh, report card, we noted that the Liverpool need a new stadium, a new chief executive, a new director of football, and a new director of communication, plus they need to fix the team itself, uh, which may take some time. Um, brutal question for you. Do they need a new manager, too? Uh, a couple of days ago, the answer was no. And I think most people in and outside Liverpool would have said, look, you know, give Kenny uh, another season to get it right. But as soon as pl- um, people like uh, Roberto Martinez are linked to the club, I think people think, oh, actually, what Liverpool could do with a young manager, someone who's still... Passionate, young, energetic, sticks to his principles, obviously on the upward trajectory. And you compare that to Kenny, who's been at the game a long time and I think has struggled because he's been not, not completely at the game, but he's not been at the cutting edge of the game. And I think he struggled with that at times. So deep intake of breath. I think maybe Liverpool do need a new manager. All right, I'm going to stop you there before the Tonys come and get you and, 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 and beat you savagely. For, uh, for what you just said and let's move on and pretend that that never happened Wolves are going down they were beaten again by Wigan uh, but they've done something about it appointing Stales Solbakken he of the four league titles with Copenhagen and near fisticuffs with Pep Guardiola Ollie, as you know I'm a pretentious Euro snob so of course I love the appointment uh, you're more grounded in harsh northern reality is this really a better decision than say the old familiar faces of Alan Kerbishley or Steve Bruce? Um, the idea of an Alan Kerbishley type appointment would have left me cold, really. Um, I, I, I think Sawback and he's at least it's a bit more adventurous. It, it, it's a bit, you know, more fresh and, and will probably uh, energise the club in some ways. Or at least that's how it's thought out. I mean, I'd, I would love to know the, the, the thought process and, and whether it was, uh, you know, meticulously researched and, and so on. Because it, their, their previous decision, which was to, to sack McCarthy and not hire a replacement that that, that looked particularly ill-researched so you've got to be slightly sceptical about it but I, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting appointment a gamble certainly but um, I, I, I prefer a gamble to one of those tired old faces Gab here's one for you uh, there's one game to go in France and Carlo Ancelotti's Paris Saint-Germain were trying to close the gap on Montpellier did they succeed? Uh, no, Allison, they didn't. And again, it was, it was very dramatic. Not as dramatic as the biggest and best league in the world, of course, but um, they do have one match to play. But uh, Paris Saint-Germain were, were three games uh, behind. They were playing Rennes at home. They they pummeled them. They won 3-0. In the meantime, um, Montpellier, uh, they were at home to Lille. And... Uh, the game went right down into injury time, and it was still nil-nil, which meant that uh, Paris Saint-Germain had closed the gap to just a single point. Remember, PSG had the edge in terms of goal difference. And then deep, deep, 
deep into injury time, Olivier Giroud sets up the winning goal for uh, Montpellier, and uh, they win. And now it's you know they'd have to lose in the final day of the season, coupled with a Paris Saint-Germain victory. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. And so it's a tremendous story. This tiny, tiny club, um, and you close to Marseille. Well, there you go. That makes you instantly like him. Uh, you know, Rene Girard, uh, um, uh, Olivier Giroud, uh, Yunus Bahanda. Um, these are all names that I think you'll be hearing more of. That's all we've got time for this week. But before I let you go, a quick reminder that we're doing another live roadshow with me and some very special guests. You know, I think I can say who they are. It's Sir Bobby Charlton. It's Super Agent Mark Curtis. It's Diego Armando Maradona. I know you're excited. It's Joey Barton and it's Mario Balotelli. They'll all be joining me at the Freemasons Arm near Covent Garden in London. And that's on May 29th from 7 p.m. Uh, scheduled appearances, of course, subject to change at the last minute. In fact, right now, because none of those people are coming. It'll probably just be me and a bunch of people from the Times podcast. But you can still book at www.timestickets.co.uk or call 0871-620-4025. All of this yours for just £7.50 per person. Until then, you can go to thetimes.co.uk. You'll find your news, your gossip, your analysis, um, our web chats. You can follow us on Twitter. There's an exciting segment coming up where all of us have put out our, uh, our teams, of our 11s of the seasons. Um, I'm rather embarrassed to say this, but mine is almost identical to Ollie Kay's. I don't know what that says. I thought I was being very different by uh, uh, putting a couple Newcastle players in there, but I guess maybe I wasn't. Till next time, bye-bye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.